Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to a bonus episode of The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Tate Barkley is an attorney, he's not yours. So we always (laughs) recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. Hi, Tate. Welcome to The Whole View. It's a bit of a a disconnect maybe for some of our listeners to be like, why are you having an LGBTQ lawyer on the show? (laughs) So especially there is a humanitarian crisis, but there is a war here at home on LGBTQ rights. And as a queer person myself, as the mother of a gay son, as the mother of a trans non-binary kiddo, like I worry for the well-being of my children every day. and. A listener once said to me, how can I support health and the well-being of everyone if not everyone is safe to live their full life? And it really impacted me deeply to consider wellness and the wellness community to expand beyond this idea of like biohacking to our perfect biological selves when we live in a bubble of safety because there are so many people out there who can't think about those kinds of aspects of their health because they're truly fighting much bigger concerns, stresses that affect health on a daily basis and don't have access to healthcare or different kinds of things. And so here to dive into that today and give us some ideas on how to be advocates and allies for all of us to have rights to basic healthcare and be treated with respect and dignity as an expert on the topic, LGBTQ rights lawyer, Tate Barkley, who grew up closeted and afraid in the rural South during the mid 20th century and is now living as an out, highly respected attorney in a time when the basic rights of the LGBTQ community remain under attack by the highest offices in the land and individual and community opinions are just so divisive. So I want to start by saying, you know, this is a politically neutral show. We're talking about the rights of humans. And I think oftentimes it can feel very much like something is bad or good or those kinds of things. And instead, I encourage listeners to think today about the rights of all human beings as being equal. And just like I want the best for my son, I hope that other listeners would want the best for all people everywhere. And hopefully the show is coming out as a reminder for you to go vote. So where I live, November 7th is our voting day. And sometimes when it's not a big election, it can feel like it's not that important. But Tate, I don't know if you follow Sharon from Sharon Says So, but she's, mm-hmm. yeah, she's 
great and does a lot of advocacy and education. And one of the things that she talks about a lot is how important local elections are, because that is really what affects a lot of what we experience in our day to day in our communities and impacts rolling up to higher offices as well. And so and remind people that today is the day to get out and vote to be kind and thoughtful to your fellow human beings. And Tate, I'm excited to dive into a little bit of that and your history today. Can you tell listeners anything I missed or forgot about your story? And No, I don't think so. And listen, Stacey, thank you for having me on the show and thank you for, <clears throat> for having this kind of platform for people to feel whole and healthy because you have, you really hit it on the, the, uh, the head of the nail on the head. Whenever you say that wholeness and health is about the whole human being, it's just not about aspects. It's just not what we eat, but it's how we are, we're able to live and to express ourselves. And I think that when we start the conversation, we don't, when it comes to certain things, like you, I don't want a partisan or polemical conversation. I think we have a conversation It's about human rights, about the rights of all folk to be able to express themselves, to be able to live who they live the way they choose, and to be the person that they know that they are on the inside and be able to be that person on the outside. And that's a great concern as we talk about the future, is how those basic rights, those rights to be who you are under attack, aggressively under attack in a lot of places. And, and I feel it. I live in Texas and as I, I don't think I'm sharing anything new when we say this is a very conservative state. And so, and we're seeing, and, and we're seeing that kind of a reactionary movement to, to basic human rights happening here and in a lot of different places. If I can. I want to follow up on something that you just shared about local elections, because I think that's important. And it's important from this way. I, I understand, and, and there's no doubt that the president and Congress are very important. And that's certainly no doubt that the Supreme Court in our country is very important. But really how we're treated on a day-to-day -day basis comes from the city and county level in a lot of ways. If you take, for example, have a, a, a local police department that's, that's uh, not open to, to all people and all lifestyles, the treatment that you received on a, when you're pulled over for speeding or there's an insurance check or you're suspected of having committed a crime, the treatment can be very different. If you live in a place that, that says that certain people, for example, let's say gay people or trans people are not to be respected, they're not worthy of the same treatment or the same liberty or the same respect as others. So that local level is really granular. And I, I can speak to here in Texas is our local level tends to be certainly more open-minded than say at the state level. So these are important elections and that day-to-day -day treatment of communities is, is decided in a lot of ways right there at that local level. So it's very important. Makes a lot of sense. I'm curious how growing up, as we're considering how these things affect people, right? I can think of big stories on a national level of people who literally are killed from being pulled over from minor traffic stops or violations. Um, 
And so I'm curious on a more everyday type of level, how your health and well-being was affected growing up, given the pressures that you were experiencing from family and a time and a place that wasn't welcoming to LGBTQ right. rights. Right. And, and it affected me, and it's been some time ago, but it affected me personally in a way that I lived in a, in a culture, in a community. When I first started becoming aware that I was attracted to other guys at that sixth, seventh, eighth grade level, when I, that first awareness was there that about all of that, that there is a great deal of repression that takes place, or at least took place. Let me speak for myself. It took place for me in those early days. And I live generally in a community. And I got to tell you, the, the epithets and the vulgar language that was used about gays and the queer community generally was very intense. And I was just too afraid. I stayed in fear. And it's a horrible, it's a terrible way to live. And also, word would always get out if the police suspected someone was queer, then they got beat down. That's just the way that it was. It was like open season on that suspected queer person that they arrested because no one was going to hold them to account because the queer community was less than. They were an abomination. So we get to treat them differently. And the way they treated uh, us differently was to certainly be more violent and aggressive, oftentimes. Did you find that the repression affected other areas of your health? We've been doing a lot of sharing in the podcast about like how repressed trauma can cause many sort of like health elements that come out either at that time or later in life. And I'm curious if repressing who your identity really is brought that to you. And I know that there are, because I've looked at them for my own children, a ton of studies these days that show suicidality, depression, all of that kind of stuff has increased. I'm curious how your well-being was affected living in this repressed state for as long as you did. Yeah, and thank you for talking about that. As I, I sit here today as a recovering alcoholic and addict of 24 years and a proud gay man. And I remember, though, I can vividly remember, Stacy, the first time that I ever felt free and alive. I was in seventh grade. We had just moved from small town, North Carolina to Houston. And I was... We lived in this sprawling apartment complex and behind that apartment complex was a bayou and a buddy of mine scored some Miller High Life beers and I'd never really drank before. And his name was Bruce and, and Bruce said, here, try this. And I saw one back and I really didn't like it that much, but he gave me another one and I, I sucked another one back. And by the time I finished that second beer, I felt alive. I felt like this weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And I caught that first real beer buzz and it was like I was Superman. And if I can just go a little bit further about this sensation, there was a water pipe that ran across this bayou and I had always been too afraid to walk across it like some of my other friends. But when I caught that beer buzz after that second beer, I felt brave and I walked across it and I walked across it several times and I felt like, man, I'm Superman. I'm on top of the world. And I found my equivalent of bliss that night on the bayou when I started to drink. 
I share that story with you in that I chased that wonderful sense of relief and courage that I found from drinking the rest of my drinking career. I never had a buzz quite that good ever again, but I kept chasing it and trying to find it. There's there, as the years went by, Stacy, my coping, trying to cope with the shame that I felt for being gay, the repression I was putting myself under not to be that gay guy. I coped with alcohol. And as I went into adulthood, my drinking became intensely alcoholic and my prescription drug use became addictive. And there's no doubt in my mind that this shame and repression I put myself through certainly contributed. I'm not going to say it caused it, who knows, but I want to tell you that it's how I coped with that repression and that shame was through drinking and drugs. And I, I hit rock bottom. I became suicidal as you talked about, and it was by some grace somewhere that I didn't take 20. 40 milligram tablets of Valium with some Johnny Walker Black in 1999. Instead, I called a treatment center, but it was very close. So, so yes, I, I talk about this a lot more in the book, but for me, drugs and alcohol, when you're in addiction, you're not healthy. I'm sorry. It just, it's just hard to be that way. And I, and that's how I coped. And I had a lot of these issues for whether it was biting my fingernails or tapping my foot all the time because I was nervous. I did a lot of those things, just eating too much, just anything to cope. And but it was really, oh, my favorites were booze and pills though. But yeah, so you're right. Whenever you're not free to live who you are and the life that you want and you don't feel safe, you have to cope. And for me, I cope with in a very self-destructive way for a long time. I'm grateful for resources that are available for you to have called a treatment line for suicide hotlines to be available. And I think one of the things that scares me in this day and age is the lack of support for those kind of resources. The lack of, it's like we're pulling back some of the things that have been made available that where we see progress being made in some areas of people feeling more safe, people feeling that they can have access if needed. And now we're starting to see from a legal perspective, funding being withheld to affect some of these other sort of, I'm trying to come up with like a non-political way to say, <laughs> like, instead of addressing the matters from an actual legal perspective because those laws weren't approved, instead yeah. now things are being addressed from a funding perspective or these other kinds of areas. I know you mentioned earlier the Supreme Court and Congress having effect on all of us. We're talking about today being election day, so I want to also talk a little bit about how legally the things that are happening in the world around us are affecting the rights of those around us. LGBTQ, yes. And I can also think of people of color, of differently abled people. I have neurodivergent people in my home. Are, is everybody going to have the same access in the future? And I know from dealing with a foster child in my home where you know, the first two years of being foster parents are entirely different than the last 
year and a half to two years because we have a different governor in this in in charge of our state who's making different kinds of rules and different kinds of funding decisions as to the social programs. And it's seeing how that plays out into everyday life and the impacts that it has on our ability to access good medical care or different kinds of things. It's just, I, I see it on a very micro level. And so I know it must be happening on a larger scale legally, if you can maybe speak to some of that. Yeah, a couple of things really came up there. And, and I think that it's important, and I appreciate the opening the door of to being able to talk about these things in a, in a logical way. Let's first talk about how funding is being cut in a lot of places. We're seeing, I talked about earlier, at least speaking for myself, and I feel like when I say this, I speak for a lot of folks who are in what have traditionally been vulnerable communities. I didn't feel safe, so I repressed and I coped with drinking because I didn't feel safe. One of the things that I feel like over the last 10 to 15 years that, that we were improving upon was, the, was creating a space where everyone could feel safe whether they were neurodivergent, whether they were queer, whether they were a person of color, it really didn't matter to create a safe space and to create access to materials where you can learn that there are other people like you, where you could learn access to resources that could help you if you were struggling. What we're seeing here, and I'll, I'll say it, we're seeing it here in, in my state and we're seeing it in a lot of states first, is we're seeing that the access to these websites and to these programs are being blocked. They're being to where they can't be accessed when the children are at school. We're also seeing the banning of books taking place to where access to material where you can learn about perhaps people that are like you if you're struggling with something is being denied and those books are being taken out. So. The ability to seek out that information and the ability to seek out that help often. And with this comes a number of 1-800 lines and a number of websites that are just not being funded at all to help a lot of these kids. So, so there's my word that those safe places are being curtailed based upon what appears to me to be a political agenda. Now let's go to the funding issue that you talked about as well. And this can be, the funding issue is, can be really just as insidious as if it's applied to repressing people. And let me take, for example, I'll just take for an example, what's happened in my state where there is no more funding for diversity, equity, and a DEI as it's referred to diversity, equity, and inclusion funding in any of our major public universities. That's, that, that's not to be had. We're not going to have DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, the practical effect of that is, is that those safe places that people could go, they don't exist anymore because there's no funding for them. The staffers and oftentimes trained therapists that would uh, be a part of those programs are not available to the students. And that includes uh, college students and high school students both. So that funding shrinking for those resources has an impact too. 
in my great fear is, is I, I, maybe I've got PTSD, Stacey, but my great fear is that we become a place that was like when I grew up so many years ago to where we had to hide, we had to repress, we had to live in fear, and there was no one to talk to. One of the things that, that I, there were no openly gay men where I started my life for a long time. And they were just, they were there. They were just too afraid. And to come out too afraid to let it be known. And I just really hope that we don't go back to a world where we make people feel so unsafe just because they may be a little bit different or perceive themselves as a little bit different. And one more thing, I think that is, we talked about particularly neurodivergent, the population out there, like I know, like here in Texas, it's the little things mean a lot, like with kids who perhaps are on the spectrum. I think it's been proven that certain like ABA therapy is proven to be a very effective means of, of assisting those folks. But yet Texas Medicaid doesn't pay for ABA therapy. It's some little small policy. It seems like a very small policy decision, but it impacts so many people and their families when you don't have access to proven, recommended treatment, especially for your kids. It just, it breaks the heart. And we're seeing more and more of that curtailing of money for those folks who need the most help. It seems like. So anyway, I go on forever. So let me stop. it. No, I <laughs> totally agree with what you're saying. So you could go on forever. <laughs> I, I think of the example that we're dealing with right now, right? Like, so just to give listeners, I think stories of individuals can sometimes be helpful to understand how these things are impacted. So in our scenario, we are adopting. So we've already declared, we've already done, you know, 90% of the paperwork towards adopting a child who is now 17. They came into our home when they were 14. And we want to get them medical help for some of their diagnoses, one of which very common with trans LGBTQ folk is dysphoria. And this feeling of being very uncomfortable in their body and that often leads to, for a lot of people in that scenario, suicidal thoughts and different kinds of things because they feel so uncomfortable in their body that it feels like the only relief might be to end it all, right? And so it's very important as parents of this child to support their getting their needs met in this area to both have therapeutic services as well as medication to help them feel more comfortable and safe in their own body. The problem is that I'm not the legal guardian. I can't make the decisions. I have to advocate on behalf of this child for their needs as a foster mom until we are fully adopted to their legal guardian. Their legal guardian is 100% in agreement that they need services specific to a medical professional with understanding of their medical diagnosis, someone who is specific to LGBTQ rights. So we go through all of this research to find a medical practice that specializes in some of their diagnoses and in understanding their needs. Great. That 
practitioner does not accept Medicare. It's Medicare, not Medicaid, right? I always get them confused. Medicare is typically for older Americans okay. and Medicaid is for folks who don't make enough money to use it and kids. Okay. So Medicaid is what is provided through the state for foster kids. So this practitioner does not currently take Medicaid. They're willing. This practitioner is so wonderful and recognizes the need in a higher percentage of children in the system. You know what? This is actually worthwhile to me. I'm going to go through the process of working with the state and signing a contract with the state. Uh, it's a nightmare. It's like four months later and the contract still isn't signed. And then I find out that the higher ups within the state or the county have said, this is not going to work because we had said, you know what, let's just forget the contract. We're going to be adopting them soon anyway. We'll pay out of pocket and you reimburse us for whatever that it's half as expensive that way anyway, right? Like to do it directly and not through insurance. They're like, yeah, that should work. And then they come back to us and they say, nope, that won't work either. So it's like we've gone through months and months of trying to get proper medical care, finding a practitioner who's willing to bend over backwards and even being willing to pay out of pocket. And still we are denied the approval for this child to get their needs met with a medical provider who can support their diagnoses. As a parent, I hope that Listeners, you can understand if your child was diagnosed with something, be it cancer, be it depression, be it any of these things, like you will move mountains to help and support your child. That is, at least from my perspective, I know that there are some parents out there who want to deny or put children into conversion therapy. We know that's terrible for children. Like, and, and people in general in terms of mental health and well-being, I think the majority of us, the listeners at least of this show, would move mountains to create a safe space, a well-being, a med medical practitioner that could support the child. And yet, despite the fact that this child has an entire treatment team of people, a team of people that literally exist and get paid to support their needs, I cannot get them in to see this medical professional that they need. And that, I hope, is an example of something that people can understand how the restrictions on the funding are having a very severe impact on individual lives. Because the reason that the restrictions are so strict in terms of this contract being signed with the provider and all the very finite terms and rates and things that need to be approved by them or for us paying out of pocket and being reimbursed, like because that's all money dependent, it can be controlled in that area. Mm -hmm. And it's negatively impacting real life children who for years now, this child has struggled in trying to find a medical provider who can support their need in this area. And it boggles my mind to think that we, I am an educated woman. I have access to a lot of things. I am a strong personality who can advocate. That is my like love language. I will advocate for people till I run out of breath. And yet I cannot make this happen. I cannot imagine how difficult it is for 
a child who doesn't have that kind of support or who like all of those kinds of things that needs access to the hotlines and needs access to people who will advocate for them that they can call and ask for help. And it's it just blows my mind that this is where we are, despite the research, the medical recommendations, like everything from every prominent organization out there says this is what is needed for the well-being, yet we're making decisions legally in the opposite direction of that. That's right. And, right. and it's happening in a lot of different places right now. And and that's really the big concern. Well, well, first, part of resolving that is to talk about it like you're doing today, making people aware of what's happening and making people aware that these policy decisions and these funding decisions are impacting real lives, including very vulnerable people who are worthy in every way of, of all of our help as not only individually, but as a society. So that, that doing what you're doing, letting people know that this is happening is so very important because I think, I, I hope that once people know what's going on out there, that it will start changing the minds and start, they'll start sharing that. Speaking of local elections and elections again, and they'll start expressing themselves in a way to where we can have greater access and more protection for those who are most vulnerable among us. Agreed. I'm wondering what ways, other than going and voting today, can allies not just support, but also advocate for better rights and access for all? What are some things that you would recommend? So there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things, and people can help in a lot of different ways, depending upon what you're most comfortable with. First and foremost, as you said, you register to vote and you go vote and actually participate in the process of voting and take someone with you to vote if they may not have a ride or they may not be able to get to the polls themselves or a mail-in ballot is not available to them, which is happening in a lot of places. That's being restricted as well. Now, the second thing is, I feel like, is telling your story. We all have a story to tell. And we have all experienced some kind of frustration, perhaps even shame, or we have all been denied, or many of us have been denied those opportunities. Share that like we're doing here today. If people, it's, I can't help but go back to what Harvey Milk said. And, and for those who may not know who Harvey Milk was, he was a, uh, a gay rights activist in San Francisco in the late seventies and, uh, was elected to the equivalent of a city council position. And, and Harvey Milk put out a, a rallying cry to the gay community in those days. And he said, come out, come out wherever you are. And I think a lot of people at the time thought he was being silly. Oh yeah, they're acting that way. But what he meant was, is when people, when your family and those who love you know that you're gay, when your friends know that you're gay and they realize that gays aren't monsters, they've, they're, they've been vilified and shunned for so long, but when they know you're that loving brother, you're that helpful friend, you're the guy across the street that always waves, when they know those things, then these views begin to change. So it's the same theory on everything, really. It's come out wherever you are and share whatever needs to be shared, whether you're neurodivergent or whether you're simply need help 
at school or someplace else so you can read or so that you can hear better. So many things. And I think that is the other way. Speak up for sure. So not only come out wherever you are, but once you do that, speak up. If you need help, raise your hand and say so. And if no one's listening, keep raising your hand and keep saying so. And maybe get two other people that need the same kind of help that you need and get them to stand with you and to raise their hands at the same time. That's the other way. I think that you can be of help, but you write your representatives and you join those organizations that, that advocate for causes that you're passionate about and you do the best you can, and you do the best you can with it. Keep in mind, you don't have to save the world all by yourself. You can do, each of us can do our bit, what's in front of us. And collectively, we can make a great deal of change. We've seen it happen in this country. We've seen it happen with women's suffrage. We've seen it happen with civil rights. We've seen it happen in a lot of phases of American life that when we collectively act together, that we can make that difference. So those are just a couple of ways that I think where you can help. But I love that. And the one additional thing that I would add to that is also come out in terms of religious freedom and support, because Indeed. all the things that we're talking about right now, the thing that is also happening worldwide and in America is Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And I just want to give a hug and a heart to every listener who doesn't fall within the norm because there's 5% of people probably in the country who fit whatever this perfect ideal of <laughs> what everyone should be. And we're all made to feel less than otherwise. And if we come together, we are a swell. We are a riptide that cannot be stopped because a rising tide lifts all ships. We have to come together to advocate for the rights, the safety for everyone. And so I hope, listeners, that this motivates you to not just go vote today, but Tate, I love your idea of finding someone to bring with you. I myself am taking my 18-year-old, my oldest, to vote for his very first time today. Oh, yeah, that's a cool day. Yeah, Even though he's <laughs> eye-rolling and like, what does this even matter, the whole thing. But I feel like wherever you can support or reach out to your local voter registrar office, it's not too late to start being a helper today, but also for the next year. This, this next year is also a big cycle in terms of if you have time to donate, to send postcards to people, to offer rides, to do all of these kinds of things, that is how we can become that rising tide together. So Tate, thank you so much for joining and, and sharing your knowledge today. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Tate and his story, his new book, Sunday Dinners, Moonshine and Men, is available. We'll put a link in the show notes for you there. And you can also connect with him on LinkedIn. We'll put a link in the show notes. I think if you're trying to find legal counsel in Texas, that sounds like a great fit, the appropriate place. But you can also Find him on Instagram and Facebook, and all of those are accessed through his website, tatebarkley.com. Thank you so much for joining. Was there anything else that you wanted to add before we part with listeners? And I just want to say that if anyone has any thoughts or questions, that you can email me on tatebarkley.com. It's tate at tatebarkley.com. 
I answer those emails. So uh, just shoot an email if you've got a question or a thought about anything. It's okay. Just fire away. I love that. Thank you for being available for that. And we'll put all the links and information for you at realeverything.com. Tate, thank you so much for your willingness to be here today. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, please share it. That's the absolute best way that you can make a difference in the world, but also help others find our podcasts. And don't forget to follow or subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using. As always, we appreciate your willingness to be open to grow through your own personal change because no one is perfect. But in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can choose to become better versions of ourselves for ourselves. Thanks. And we'll be back again shortly. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.